Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Craig Bruce Smith. He is an assistant professor of military history at the School of Advanced Military Studies at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He is the author of American Honor, the Creation of the Nation's Ideals During the Revolutionary Era, co-author of George Washington's Lessons in Ethical Leadership, and we have stolen him away today and prevented him from doing his work on his new book, The Greatest Man in the World, A Global History of George Washington. Craig Bruce Smith, welcome to Madison's Notes. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me on. And as I have to work in all things, all views are my own, represent no one but me. That's right. Uh, Well, let's talk about your views, and I'd like to start here. Early in American honor, you quote the eminent historian of the American founding, Gordon Wood. And Wood says, quote, a new generation of historians is no longer interested in how the United States came to be, end quote. Now, a quick review of your work, and certainly these three books of yours I've just mentioned, shows that's obviously not true of you. So why are you so interested in studying how and why the United States came to be, and why should our listeners share that interest? I think uh, starting off with a bang, quoting Gordon Wood, always gets (laughs) a uh, reaction from all people. Um, I I do think the founding matters, and uh, there's a lot, lots of controversy over you know, particularly right now with, with varying interpretations, whether from academic, popular history, or, or the New York Times, what is the founding of America? Right. Um, and historiographically, uh, it's changed a lot. Um, but in, in the recent sort of scholarship, uh, at least in academia, it's gotten away from questions of creation or causation. And it's become more about um, varying themes within there. Um, I always felt that the story of how America came to be, what led to it, uh, what results from it, wasn't fully told. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, there there aren't other interpretations and you could find all sorts of of causation narratives, all sorts of thematic topics. Um, I I want to think it was Jack Rakoff who said that the, in the the late 90s, that the question of the American founding had been solved. Period. Mm. End of story. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I found that that wasn't the case. I mean, we have political, fa- you know, look at political foundings, cultural foundings, social foundings. Now, uh, also with race, class, gender, uh, economic interpretations. But what I had found, there had never been a moral or an ethical look mm. at the ideas. And it's very much, uh, if you're thinking in the tradition of Bernard Balin or, or Gordon Wood, Right. Um, the idea that ideas matter mm-hmm. and ethics are, are certainly ideas they're ideals um, but they're ones that I felt had not been explored uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that uh, it's really hard to put uh, your finger on what isn't you know what does someone morally or ethically believe yeah um, how can you prove it it's really not 
tangible in the same way. I compare it almost to the study of religion. How can you prove what a person believes? Well, you yeah. have to go based on what they tell you. And that means a very heavy reliance on the source material. Hmm. And a lot of the work on the founders lately has been quite jaded, um, where everything they said is met with, well, there it this is masking some sort of ulterior motive about yeah. self-interest or economic motivation or or anything else under the sun, biases of, of numerous sorts. And what I started with is a question of how does the story change if we take them at their word? Mm. Barring evidence to the contrary, if we look at what they said and what they did and we take them at their word, how does the story of the American founding change? And that's what I really wanted to do. So it is in the Wood, Balin, um, you know, tradition. Um, but it's one I, I think is really also rooted in, in sort of newer scholarship in that it's not just looking at what the elites thought, but it's looking at all classes, genders, races within America and how each understood an ethical concept, which in their time period would have been understood as sort of jointly as honor and virtue. Mm. Um, so that's how I came to it because it's, I find the founding uh, is still immensely interesting and it, immensely important. And we've seen with lots of the debates right now about what right. the constitution means, what the founders said, what they mean, and how it still has this resonance and this, this impact socially and politically. Um, I think it's something that we should never not study. Um, so I, I hope yeah. just my small contribution here can, can help um, get us to a better understanding of what the, the American founding was. So let's talk about honor, right? I mentioned you've written this wonderful book, American Honor. And let's start with maybe the preeminent document of the American founding, the Declaration of Independence. Yes. And the Declaration of Independence closes, quote, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, end quote. What did that mean to those men? to pledge their sacred honor. That was to someone in the 18th century. Um, honor was the ultimate sort of pledge. Um, it was the, the ultimate um, value of your character, of your person. Uh, and now it's a really antiquated word. So today, yeah. uh, the, uh, the chances of you having used the word honor, probably maybe if you're in the military or if you've been in front of a judge lately. <laughs> um, or a Boy Scout or something like that. Right. But other than that, you probably aren't using it. You know, maybe you accept an award or something, but mm -hmm. you're probably not using it. Um, it can mean all sorts of things. It's an ancient concept. It's meant everything from reputation to valor, to courage, to duty. Um, it's usually tied to virtue, um, which is usually more akin to ethics, particularly religious ethics. Um, but how it was, came to be understood by the American patriots was as an ethical concept. Um, so when I invite modern audiences, when they hear the word honor, they're really talking what we would think of as ethics. Um, and there were regional differences. The further north you went, honor and virtue were separated. Virtue took prominence. Uh, further south you went, the terms were, were basically interchangeable. Mm. But... Um, 
by the founding, there's a pretty good sense of, of this, this shared sense of honor and ethical purpose. And it's one that John Adams is going to mention that, you know, uh, paraphrasing a bit, he's going to say, uh, we use different words by honor and virtue, but every day we become more and more alike. Mm-hmm. And this is something that had been building um, through the boycotts and resistance in the 1760s and the 1770s. And the, they first used term, the term sacred honor actually at the first Continental Congress in 1774. Right. So this is something that had joined them. This concept had joined them even before independence is being discussed. Uh, so, so what's meant? Well, it's basically, it's a pledge of uh, a shared ethical belief in um, their cause, meaning resistance to what they view as British tyranny, uh, support of rule of law, government following um, what is proper, proper belief, proper action in service of, of the greater good of, of the country, you know, collective colonies, and then the nation. So why the term sacred? And, and this is, again, a lot of speculation because yeah. um, to, my, to my knowledge, there's nothing that explains, well, I meant, you know, Jefferson doesn't like, well, what I meant was. <laughs> um, but the term sacred, obviously it has something, it has a, you know, a, a religious aspect to it. But you're dealing with a, uh, a revolution that is going to lead up, lead, end with the separation of church and state. And this is something that is very much understood during this period of you've got people of multiple denominations, again, largely Christian, multiple denominations that are, are coming to this. Again, you see the, even the, the few words before you hear the mention of the divine, right. um, but it's about honor being almost a, is a secular morality, a morality and ethical belief that you need not be a, of any particular denomination or religion to follow. It's a civic religion. Hmm. So placing that term sacred can denotes this sort of elevation of the term. Um, it also coincides with, if you're a good Anglican, um, seeking independence is not just going against the king as the sovereign of, of Britain. It's also going against the king as the head of the Anglican church. Right. So it's allowing for this separation to show that there is a re- civic um, moral aspect to this that is in some ways allowing for this separation. And a lot of it is based on uh, interpretations of Montesquieu that honor cannot bear with despotism. So you owe no allegiance to a king um, because he sacrificed his own honor. You mentioned these regional differences. And it's striking that you have these men from different colonies. I mean, essentially different countries Mm -hmm. in some ways. And yet they had enough of a common appreciation and understanding of honor and what that meant to behave honorably that they considered it significant enough to stake this cause of liberty on it. So how did that consensus come to be? Now, there's all sorts of different ways. And again, because depending on someone's background, depending on um, their region, it's going to be developed in different ways. So if you look at like someone like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, uh, they're not educated in, in the same way as a lot of the sort of upper class individuals who are going to go on to become signers of the Declaration of the Constitution. Right. Benjamin Franklin, very much a self-made man, you know, uh, the youngest son of the youngest son for five generations back when birth status mattered. Right. He found his way through his own 
uh, reading, again, very much mimicking at first the, the European style that you'd find in, in British literature and, and gentlemen's magazines like The Spectator um, and following classical history. Um, but what he starts to change as early as the 1720s, uh, honor had always been this sort of aristocratic monarchical concept that it basically was your connection to the king and, and birth status. Franklin yeah. by the 1720s is arguing that no, it's honor is an ascending concept, meaning uh, the only people that are due honor are those who behave in a proper way and the person that taught them to do that. So parents, mm. teachers, um, and honor could never descend based on a bloodline. And mentions this in the 1720s, very much, you know, I, I, you can speculate for his own sense, not having this birth status. And he doesn't really mention it again until the 1780s huh. um, when the nation is, is being established. And it's very much uh, pushing back against sort of this idea of, uh, you know, uh, elites in America, uh, specifically in answer to the Society of Cincinnati, which was a, a mm. hereditary organization of former revolutionary officers. Washington uh, comes through, through literature like Franklin, but also he has male role models, his older half-brother Lawrence, who marries into the aristocratic Fairfax family. So Washington has the sort of models he looks up to. A lot of the others, um, whether it's John Adams or Thomas Jefferson, are coming at it through education. Um, early schools, whether it's Harvard or William and Mary, have built-in senses of honor. Um, they don't necessarily have a formalized honor code, but honor, ethics are taught. Um, they're also instilled in varying ru various rules um, that exist in, 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 the, in the colleges, on behavior, uh, what can and cannot be done. And then some of these are, are standard sort of regulations, you know, no drinking in the rooms or, um, but it's, it's always sort of placed on the sense of honor. And you have cases where, you know, the expectation is students must turn, on, turn in other students who have violated this honor, right. although there's all varying definitions of this, um, where students sometimes will band together and then the faculty will, will accuse them of having the honor of a band of thieves. And <laughs> that can sometimes lead to violence against the faculty. Um, but it, it can come from different ways. Um, but those are those are a lot of from the, for the leadership. Those are the different paths. Um, but it's something you could really, really couldn't escape. Again, to paraphrase Bertram Y. Brown, who, who's written extensively on honor before he died, um, it's not something you could really escape. And people could come to it through personal experience. They could come through it culturally. They can come through it through literature, through education. Um, there's lots of variants, but almost universally, it was agreed that this was an important concept. How important is it when you're trying to inculcate the sense of honor in someone that uh, the young man or the young woman have examples of people who lived and behaved honorably? So you mentioned that in these colleges and universities, they would read Plutarch's lives. Sure. Um, how important was that to have these examples of honor? Oh, that's exceptionally important. And to be a good Anglo-American, you believed you were the heirs to ancient Rome you know, more so than, than people living there. Um, so there would be these classical examples, Greek, Roman, but also throughout British history. Um, these were the examples, these were the exemplars. And these figures could be looked upon for uh, varying reasons. It could be a particular incident or particular quality. 
Um, so um, you could look at um, Cincinnatus for surrendering power or uh, another of Washington's favorites, uh, the great, you know, uh, classical general uh, Cato. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea that there were these exemplars to model yourself on. Yeah. Um, and they did not have to be these sort of classical figures, but this they could be personal figures like Washington had. Um, but the literature allowed a path for those that didn't necessarily have these, these exemplars. But if you went to school, the idea the faculty were supposed to be these pinnacles of honor for which the yeah. students could aspire. So the faculty were, were, were governed just the same. Again, results may vary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so in fact, at William and Mary, um, one professor, he was the professor of moral philosophy, led his students in a pitched gun battle against local uh, townies in Williamsburg. <laughs> um, so it, it, over a matter of honor. And then the, yeah. uh, the college president um, sent all the students back to their, their rooms. And the uh, professor said his honor was affronted because the president overruled his authority as their professor. <laughs> Um, if you ask someone what started the Revolutionary War, uh, they'd probably say something like taxation without representation. Sure. And that would be largely true. Uh, sure. But you explain, however, that this taxation without representation was not simply an economic gripe, right? The colonists felt that they were being dishonored by the mother country. Explain that. In what ways was the Revolutionary War a cause of the colonists believing themselves to have been dishonored? Okay. And it's, it's you know, if someone said, you know, what is we've all done it in elementary school or, or maybe higher, what caused the American revolution? Taxes, no taxation without representation. And it's, it's largely true. Yeah. Um, there are other factors in, involved as well, and I'm not discounting any of that, but I'm saying when it comes down to this, it's not, it's not simply econ economic. If you're looking at um, pieces of legislation, whether the Stamp Act or, or Townsend Act, think T Act, these are, if you're looking at them as monetary value, they're really, not that problematic. It's not financially crushing anyone uh, in, in the way that that it's envisioned in sort of you know popular you know culture or you know think of the scene of the Patriot where the guy like he cuts off my arm, my leg with for taxes or whatever you know I forget his name, Mister Howard. Anyway, the idea of taxation there was always taxation in America. Um, it, it, it always existed. The difference was Americans paid local taxes mm -hmm. uh, to their local elected representatives. And um, they gave an annual gift, a sort of gift of subsidy, where they'd give the amount of what they should be taxed to the crown. Um, because it was given freely, it wasn't a tax. But once these direct taxes were put on, it led to the issue of direct versus virtual representation. The parliament said, no, you're virtually represented. You're under the British empire. You're the British parliament. We represent you. The colonists had grown uh, to expect direct representation, direct taxation to their uh, representatives. So the idea being, well, if we're granted representatives or we return to how things had been previously, that's fine. Um, but it's the idea of taxation or forced taxation usually was something um, bestowed on a conquered people, almost mm. like a tribute. Mm. And they viewed themselves as not being treated as full Englishmen, which is how they considered themselves, especially after the French and Indian War, where they had fought alongside and in 
their estimation had fought better than the British regulars who were not necessarily well suited to North American combat. Mm. Um, again, things like the Lo proclamation of 1763 that's put on after the French and Indian War that prevents um, expansion west of the Appalachians. Uh, if, if you look at the document, it's not that it prevents expansion. Um, it's that it prevents the colonists from receiving the protection of the British crown mm. in order to prevent hostility against Native Americans that arose in Pontiac's Rebellion. So it's literally removing one of the principal requirements of government, of yeah. protection. So removing protection of English subjects in favor of, of Native Americans um, mm. to, to restore these relations. So that it's all these elements that we are not being treated as, as full English subjects. You are, have therefore dishonored us. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people come through a more personal way. Washington comes about it that uh, he worked up. A, Washington always liked to be fashionable um, in ev everything he did, whether it's clothes or China or um, so he'd worked up really high debts. And this is nothing unproblematic. It's actually considered honorable to have debts in the 18th century. So think about like a credit card, like if you got like, you know, a, you know, the black, you know, super secret card it shows that someone trusts you yeah. to pay it off therefore you're honorable um so these merchants call in the debt on washington during the period of the stamp act where they're hurting due to boycotts and washington's sort of how dare you do you think i'm not good for this and he starts to connect his personal affair with these british merchants with the wider cause of Americans. And he starts to say, American's eyes are beginning to open. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so by 1765, you see him and others really starting to think collectively in a way that they hadn't necessarily done um, uh, prior. And then the war comes. And yes. just as important as honor was in helping usher the war in, it might, and you're telling, have been just as important, if not more important during the war. I'm quoting you here. The American patriots had set high ideals for themselves as a people and a new nation. The Continental Congress was actively vocal in encouraging the country's preservation of honor and virtue as vital to the success of the United States in war and peace. Explain that. Okay. So um, if we take you back to, to Lexington. And how it's categorized. Who fires the first shot at Lexington? Uh, who knows? Americans, British, both, drunk guy from the tavern, all plausible. Um, the point is how it's categorized is uh, by the Americans. The British fired first. They are, they are murderers. The British, of course, go do the inverse. The Americans fired first. They are rebels. Um, so it's casting it in the sort of just war terms. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, you know, the idea of, of moral philosophers of the period, like Amir de Vattel, the idea that defensive war is inherently just, therefore their cause is just. So America is very eager to maintain a sort of moral superiority. And they're, the way they're doing that is to show that they are acting for what is right. They are behaving on the field in an ethical way. And that means the manner in which they fight. That means how they treat prisoners of war. That the idea is they're trying to signal also to the wider international community, also 
for assistance. So yeah. there, there is there is an element here. Um, but Washington, the Continental Congress are conscious of this idea of trying to not just win, but to win well, to mm -hmm. win in a way that they will be held up as this example. They are very much considering their long-term histor historical reputations. Yeah. Um, and they wanna ensure that this is done the proper way, that they are not viewed as sort of this rabble uh, or this riotous group um, who's not beholden to law. And they, you'd seen this even in the run-up to boycotts and things like that, where there's resistance to the more violent aspects from some of the leadership, particularly men like Washington, who when they saw riots, they were fundamentally opposed to, to such sort of destruction. Um, so when Washington uh, is involved in, in organizing the Continental Army, one of his first requirements is in officers, these have to be men of honor with, you know, character, with some, with reputation and sense of honor that that could be lost. And this was the, what would preserve them. Uh, America didn't really have a martial tradition. There's no like military academy. Right. So you're taking these gentlemen who have a sense of honor, they have a sense of what it is to behave uh, and you're placing them in charge because they would be able to, theoretically to understand this eye of what should be done, what could not be done and to restrain others who, who may not have the same you know, uh, understanding. Another quote from you here. Slave-owning patriots, such as Washington, Madison, and Jefferson, could not escape the personal hypocrisy. For men who place such emphasis on transforming thoughts into actions, the lack of any tangible efforts to end slavery is puzzling in light of their devotion to honor. But it is honor again that provides the answer, end quote. Yeah, this is one of the more difficult things to deal with when it comes to the founders. Again, the yeah. inheritance of how can you fight a revolution for liberty and freedom at the same time slavery exists. Um, and as we've seen, this has been brought forward with lots of, of the recent scholarship that where the founders have, have moved from, um, you know, heroes to hypocrites to perhaps even irredeemable um, you know, villains in, in yeah. tellings. Um, the idea being, you know, if you're looking at the concept of slavery, slavery um, was practiced throughout the world at that period. You know, it's, it's institution that's, you know, thousands of years old. Um, your earliest, ab your early abolitionist movements actually are starting during the um, revolutionary period, uh, mm -hmm. largely from, in fact, from, from Quakers in, in Pennsylvania, but it picks up and you actually have slaves petitioning for their freedom in the terms, using the terminology of the American revolution as early as 1773. The issue, it, it's, it's complicated and it has to do with, with things that are very inconsistent to our way of thinking. Um, so if we the Americans used the, the, the rhetoric of slavery, that they were being treated as slaves by the British yeah. Empire. And if they were doing so, they had, a, they had a right, they had the obligation to revolt. And in doing so, they proved their honor, they proved the righteousness of their, of their cause. Uh, for some, there was a sense that if there was a lack of resistance, you did not fight for your freedom, then you were not due honor. So there are some slaveholders that interpret it that way. Well, if the slaves are not fighting, they are not resisting for their freedom, well, then they, they are not do this honor. Mm -hmm. um, you have others um, 
uh, like Patrick Henry famously says, well, I, I, he believed slavery was wrong, but he said, I cannot do without slave labor. So fundamentally uh, separate, you know, recognizing one thing is wrong, but refusing to do anything. Uh, Jefferson, we know, has that original section, the Declaration of Independence, where he's uh, saying, well, you know, has slavery is one of the great evils, but he also blames it all on George III. So right. it's not our fault. You brought it Brit Britain. Well, we're, no, that's a problematic for other reasons. Uh, Washington is initially opposed to service of African-Americans in the Continental Army, uh, very opposed to uh, Lord Dunmore's proclamation offering freedom for slaves who fight against the Americans. Ultimately, Americans come to offer the same sort of deal, freedom uh, for, for, for slaves who fight. Uh, now for Washington, he's initially very opposed. Uh, traditional slaveholders' fears of armed insurrection of slaves. Um, but he comes to change during the war. Largely, I think, from Hear, first hearing about African-American service in and around Massachusetts, whether it's at Lexington, Concord, Bunker Hill, and then by service throughout the war. And he comes to change and he comes to see that, that African-Americans themselves are able uh, to acquire honor, same as any other person on, uh, through, through battle. And this is what starts to uh, change his view. So later in life, we know that on his death, he, his will is going to free his slaves. Now, this has become, it's almost like there's an asterisk here, because if you sit and make that claim, people, you know, will point at, well, technically it only frees one slave, William Lee, upon his death. The other slaves weren't freed until uh, Martha's death. Um, now, the reasoning for that is uh, he said, well, he doesn't want to break up families. Uh, the slaves were intermarried and interconnected with Martha's slaves, which he could not legally free because they weren't hers. They were th through her first husband. Uh, they, these were the Custis slaves that were to descend to, to her heirs. Now, he then provides for financial support for these freed slaves afterwards. Now, these slaves are, are in fact freed early, largely because Martha is... Um, concerned what will happen. She believes she's going to be murdered because the terms were upon her death and it never <laughs> doesn't specify a natural death. <laughs> so she becomes, uh, you know, very concerned that she will be killed. Um, but the idea is, you know, it's often said, well, this didn't go far enough. But Washington throughout his life, uh, particularly after he becomes president, is always concerned with national honor. He's concerned with putting the nation first. And in his mind, he is afraid what would happen if he, as this national symbol, were to free slaves or take a stand against slavery at that moment. Um, so he saves it for death. Uh, his last sort of lesson um, and, and one that may not seem a, a lot. I mean, there's been interpretations. Oh, well, he, he only freed his slaves when he had no use of them. I think that that's really reductionist. The idea that, um, you know, uh, he could have, you know, willed them as, as, as property under the law. Uh, he had grown in his later years. He's, he's reading tracts on anti-slavery. Privately, he's expressing that he's opposed to slavery. 
Mm. And this will, which is in fact published, this is not, you know, it's a private, he keeps it very secretive, but it's a document that's published. It's in print. This is something that people read. This is something Mm. people knew about. So he's making a national symbol, but he's doing it at a moment when he feels uh, he can no, he can no longer, uh, you know, perhaps it's to, to ease his, his soul or his conscience, but it's, it's definitely a national symbol. Whereas Jefferson, who we know, uh, speaks in a lot of ways fundamentally against slavery, um, only frees a handful of slaves. And so Jefferson's concept of honor was very much the idea of uh, this internal concept. You know, imagine the whole world were looking at you and never do a dishonorable thing. But he doesn't follow through with that. And the reason is he's, in, in my interpretation, is he's concerned about his reputation and he's very much afraid of how his neighbors, his friends will view him. Mm. And in the notes of the states of Virginia, uh, there's certainly this pseudoscientific racist aspect to it, but there's also elements where he believes that one day African American slaves will rise up and it will be just vengeance from God. John Adams, right? The passages on slavery are worth diamonds. But then Jefferson writes secretly to James Madison, concerned that his friends will misinterpret what he meant. He's concerned about his personal honor in a way that Washington is more concerned about the national honor over, over himself as an individual. Um, both, though they both um, say they're putting, you know, the they're both speaking this national sort of uh, honor and, and this concept, Washington really feels that I, he's withholding it for the purposes of protecting the nation, uh, yeah. whereas Jefferson in a lot of ways is, is more protecting his own reputation. Whereas, you know, we see Franklin come to, you know, early, early abolitionists in Philadelphia, uh, James Madison, even privately is, though a slaveholder himself, is speaking about the problems with not going far enough uh, in, in only saying, well, we'll outlaw the slave trade maybe in 20 years in the yeah. Constitution. Um, and he's pointing how this could be problematic. So um, it, honor is a problem in that it's, it's used to justify slavery, but it's also um, used as a means to, to help bring about an end to slavery. And it's certainly something talked about by early abolitionists on both right. sides of the Atlantic. As you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation, we don't talk much about honor today. No. Right? It's antiquated. It's obsolete. Why is that? Well, I think a lot. I think a lot of it has to do with just changes in in words. So, uh, if you're fun thing to do, if your your listeners haven't done this, is there's something called Google engrams where you can go on Google and you can chart the usages of words, and and it starts in about 1500 and it stops in 2008. So through published books, anything, you can do multiple languages. And if you look at the usages of the terms like honor and virtue, their high point, all-time high, is during the American Revolutionary Era. Then they take a dip after the sort of constitutional era. They spike again around the War of 1812, dip again, and then they spike during, you know, something happens in the 1860s. That's like present-day history. Um, But what, what's interesting is if you chart honor or honorable against ethical in the early 20th century, right about World War I era, the two terms cross. Mm. And honor 
fades from usage, but ethics rises. In fact, if you try to find the term ethics in the 18th century, you're really only talking about Aristotle. Uh, it's not a commonly used word like we mm. use it today. They would have used the term honor. Does that mean people in the 18th century were unethical? No, of course not. They just were using different terms. So now today, when we use the term ethical, whether it's business ethics, professional ethics, medical ethics, it's in the same sort of vein as, you know, Washington or Jefferson or Franklin would have meant when they said honorable behavior. So we still use the concept. We still follow it. It's just we're using very different terms. Yeah. And, and so when you hear honor, you're thinking knights or powdered wigs or uh, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. Duels. Yeah. Oh, duels and duels. <laughs> that's and this is this is the so again, when, you know, writing this book, when I mention honor, first question is, well, you're writing about duels. <laughs> well, yes, there are duels in the book because right. you need the duels. If you don't if you have a book about honor, there's not a duel in it. Someone's going to say, where are the duels? Um, <laughs> But the interesting thing about duels is by the vast majority of Americans, they were viewed as dishonorable. Uh, if you look at the numbers um, before 1800 in all of American history, there's maybe 70 duels, maybe. If you look after 1800 through, let's say the end of the 19th century, we're talking seven, 800 known duels because it's illegal. So yeah, right. you're not going to report it. Um, yeah. But the idea was for most people, it was viewed as, as dishonorable and you're risking your life. You're um, risking someone else's life. It was, you know, uh, in addition to religious aspects. Um, and so most people, you know, there's George Washington's opposed to it. There are rules written against it in, in the manuals of the Continental Army. Um, you know, you have the famous Hamilton Burr duel. Mm -hmm. That duel, actually starts an anti-dueling movement because the idea of here you have two prominent citizens you know alexander hamilton you know leader of the federalist party aaron burr sitting vice president they ruin both their careers you know one dies and one is basically done and the idea yeah. is they're putting their personal honor before the nation's honor think of what mm. they could have accomplished for the yeah. nation and it really it it, it starts this anti-dueling movement that only picks up again with not the revolutionary generation, but their sons and their grandsons who are trying to live up to the great names and don't have a war, don't have a means to do it. So mm. they take to this sort of personal combat saying, well, I'm going to prove my personal honor so I could advance in society and then take this sort of national stage. Today, we observe the anniversary of the great man, the indispensable man, George Washington's death. And as I mentioned in your introduction, you're hard at work when you're not recording podcasts on a book entitled The Greatest Man in the World, A Global History of George Washington. I'd like to take both parts of that title, but start here. What made George Washington the world's greatest man? Now, what's, what's so interesting about that title, The Greatest Man in the World, is it's a, it's a quotation, a uh, period quotation, and it is from his enemy, George III. Yeah. Uh, so this, this comes about, there's a story, George III is having uh, his portrait painted, um, and by, by, I believe it's Benjamin West, and uh, George III can't imagine a world where Washington doesn't name himself king. 
the idea, and you know, this, you know, the perception that you know Washington may have even been offered a crown, um, and and George the Third is is you know conceiving of well, the Americans will soon tire of their new King George, and you know think like Hamilton, you'll be back. Um, <laughs> Benjamin West says, turned said, well, actually, your majesty, he's surrendering power, giving his mm. commission back to Congress. And, and George III is shocked. And he says, if he does that, then he'll be the greatest man in the world. Because wow. the idea of surrendering power is so foreign. Um, if you think about the last time it happened there uh, was the classical era, going back to, you know, Roman Cincinnatus, who had dictatorial power, gave it up returned home to his farm, you know, became Russell Crowe and Gladiator. So. That's right. <laughs> um, but here, it had never really happened. If you're thinking back to great military commanders that are victorious in the field, what usually happens? They usually assume power. Think Julius Caesar. Think Oliver Cromwell in the English Civil War. I mean, shortly after, you've got Napoleon. Um, and George III is just so shocked by this. And it was, in a lot of ways, so rare, so, so unusual that Washington in 1783 is going to resign his commission uh, back, to, back to Congress, return that trust, preserving civilian supremacy. Um, and that's why I put on the cover of the book, the, 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 uh, the painting um, that is in the uh, rotunda of the, the Capitol today, because I think that's the moment. I mean, there have been others that have recognized Washington's greatness for any number of things, whether it's crossing the Delaware or um, any number of myths that, that, that were, were created around him or embellishments. But it's really that moment that seized on throughout the, the sort of world as yeah. Washington you know, Cincinnati, the American Cincinnati, Washington, who really embodies this sense of honor, um, who actually lived up to the revolution values yeah. in a way that it's, you can't say it's just rhetoric. He has a chance for personal power. He has a chance right. for all these, these traditional trappings and he turns it down. Yeah. It's striking to me just hearing you tell the story that King George doesn't say, what a fool. He doesn't say, why is he doing that? This man, King George, who has no intention of ever giving up power, hears of Washington doing that and still realizes the greatness in that act. That's really remarkable. And the fact that, you know, having your enemy, you know, someone you've just fought a war <laughs> with, I mean, this is so fundamentally shocking. And if you go to the early stages of the American Revolution, they were, the British are refusing to even call Washington general. There's a right. whole issue there. They only refer to him as, as Mr. Washington right. or later uh, Mr. Washington Esquire. Um, so we go from this moment to he's become the greatest man in the, in the world. Uh, you know, within a short period of time, there's recognition of, of, you know, living up to these values. Yeah. And the subtitle of yeah. this project, A Global History of George Washington. And you recently wrote a piece for The Hill. I'll put a link to that in the show notes in which you gave a few remarkable examples of men and women around the world and uh, Hungary, France, Ireland, the list goes on and on, men and women who praise Washington and honor Washington as even few Americans do today. Could you say a word about Washington's legacy beyond the United States? Sure. This is Washington, again, I'm contending he's a global figure. 
Mm. And it's something that really hasn't been looked at before. Uh, Washington only left what became the United States once and he went to Barbados where he caught smallpox. So I don't think it was the best trip for him. Um, but that's the only time he's left what became the United States. Um, but he is very much a global figure um, from the 1750s through, through today. Uh, you know, you get people like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, even John Adams, who get regarded as these sort of global figures because, well, Franklin, you know, flying kites and then going to France. So these international figures, Washington only speaks English, doesn't travel abroad. But he really comes on the scene in the 1750s during the French and Indian War, where he, depending on how you interpret this, may have literally fired the first shot of the French and Indian War. Yeah. Um, uh, during a skirmish uh, under his orders, a French diplomat is killed. He gets labeled by the French as an assassin. Uh, that's a great way to start your career. Yeah. <laughs> um, signs an order of surrender. British call it the most, uh, the blackest document any English subject has ever put his hand to. Mm. To He goes silent after the French Indian War. He reappears um, round about, you know, the First Continental Congress on this sort of larger stage and then taking prominence in the continental uh, army. Uh, but he's becomes this symbol that's seized on throughout the world, even during the war, uh, whether it's by uh, uh, King Louis XVI, who remarks that no, uh, that says that Washington is the only individual that outranks French officers. So French hmm. generals, French marshals. He says, consider him as if he is a marshal of France. Huh. Frederick the Great, you know, the great sort of Prussian military king, calls uh, his, his um, crossing of the Delaware the most remarkable military uh, exercise in the history of the world. Huh. Uh, you have wow. um, all these sort of international uh, examinations. The British, again, at varying points, vilify him, uh, mm -hmm. uh, in including having depicting him in drag at one point. Yeah. Um, you, you have, um, but if you think about it this way, the first monument to Washington anywhere in the world is in Ireland, not in the United States. Yeah. You have Washington celebrated in France, throughout Europe. He becomes a symbol that coincides with these sort of global revolutions uh, throughout the 19th century and beyond. Um, he's, he's a figure that's studied and represented in, in numerous cultures um, uh, in Asia, uh, celebrated um, in South America and Africa. And he's someone that transcends national boundaries. He's someone that's celebrated not necessarily as being just an American. He stands in for certain values, whether they're mm. liberty or freedom. And he's both a symbol of America, um, you know, in the way that he could be the original American flag. At the same time, he's considered as, as linked. So when you, you hear mention of other revolutionary figures, like, so like think Simon Bolivar in Latin America, um, in, the, in, in the accounts, Bolivar is regarded as, you know, South American George Washington. And this is by within South American, Latin American sources. It's not Americans putting the term on. They yeah. are holding Bolivar up to Washington, mm. not the other way around. Yeah. And yeah. we see, think about someone like Napoleon, you know, arguably one of the greatest military commanders of all time. He's going to remark, they wanted me to be George Washington. 
Hmm. And he just couldn't. So hmm. this is the symbol. And we see him, Washington, appear even in the most unlikely sources studied by, by Mao Zedong, uh, you know, during Chinese revolutionary period. Um, he's someone that comes to embody any number of things for different audiences, whether it's a, a revolutionary figure, whether it's a, f- a figure for liberty, whether it's, it's a figure for resignation of power, um, he becomes representative of so many different things. And, and he can even be used in ways that, that he maybe did not intend to be. We've seen him mm-hmm. used you know, by the, the Confederacy during the Civil War. So it's George Washington Southerner, George Washington Virginian. Mm-hmm. Um, we see him depicted negatively as uh, by, by you know, Native American communities using the old, his, his, his uh, grandfather's old name of a town destroyer. So there are all different interpretations of him, um, but by and large throughout the world, he is celebrated for the ideas he represents rather than his flaws as an individual. And that's why you see commemorations and celebrations of Washington in, in art and statues throughout the world. It's not Washington slaveholder. It's yeah. not even Washington American president or American general. It's Washington, a symbol of these sort of universal ideas of liberty. We're now more than two centuries removed uh, from the death of that indispensable man. And a startling percentage of Americans, about 20%, find him supremely dispensable uh, and would like to see statues of him and monuments torn down. You're obviously not in that group. So tell us, what should Washington mean to us today? And what lessons should we draw from his life? Yeah, I am, I'm certainly not in the, in, the, in the group to take down statues of George Washington. Um, I, you know, I certainly can understand the other perspective. And I mean, there's certainly open to debate, but I, I am certainly not in that camp. Uh, I think we need to look to Washington for his guidance today. I mean, if you're looking at, you know, we know right now, I don't think it's, it's controversial to say we're in a hyper-partisan moment. Yeah. Uh, probably, you know, I, I'm, I wouldn't say we're in the most partisan moment ever. You know, we, we did have a civil war, um, but we are certainly in a partisan moment. And people are constantly saying, well, there needs to be discussions across these partisan divides. Um, Washington, again, is in his farewell address is arguing against party. Against yeah. now, he's not saying that the, you know, the idea of will parties exist. Yeah, there's no way, you know, we're getting rid of parties or factions, but the idea that you shouldn't put party or factional or regional loyalty over the national interest, over yeah. national honor. Um, that's something we could really take uh, Washington. Um, uh, we could really follow that example. Um, if you're thinking of, uh, you know, putting the nation first over personal glory, personal advancement, um, we see that in Washington. We see him, um, again, rather than aiding, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, who's in, imprisoned during the, you know, the, well, ca- well, first as a French revolutionary, then cast out of France for being not revolutionary enough. Yeah. Uh, he he f- refuses to intervene because it's not in the interest of, of the nation. He has a duty mm-hmm. to protect America. Um, Washington, again, I think the biggest aspect is his ability to surrender power, uh, his ability to always maintain civilian supremacy of the military, mm. to uphold the ideals of the revolution, um, to set precedents that guarantee 
these ideals to revolution. So again, lots of lots of being said about um, all manner of scenarios that may or may not occur. Um, why does America have no fear of, of, of things like a coup or a monarchy or a dictatorship? It's because of precedents Washington set and continued right. to uphold. Right. So um, I think that's what we really have to focus on. And he still has, he still has applications to modern politics uh, uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, whether it's, again, uh, Lindsay Shervinsky just wrote a book on Washington's cabinet and the idea of Washington trying to have a cabinet that represents broad swatches of of the population. Again, Washington's, you know, was was different, a different representative population than today, but, um, focused across appointing people across partisan lines, across regional lines, um, all the things people wish for in their politicians today, Washington embodied. Right. And I think that's the lasting legacy that we as Americans could look to today. Our guest today has been Craig Bruce Smith. We have been discussing his tremendous book, American Honor, the creation of the nation's ideals during the revolutionary era and his forthcoming book, which I'm sure will be worth your time, The Greatest Man in the World, A Global History of George Washington. Craig, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Craig Bruce Smith on American Honor and Washington as the greatest man in the world. As I mentioned, today, December 14th, is the anniversary of George Washington's death. So I thought I'd share a brief excerpt from the eulogy Major General Henry Lee delivered of that great man. It's from this eulogy that we get that famous line, Washington as first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his country. Earlier in the eulogy, however, Lee says the following of Washington. His fame survives, bounded only by the limits of the earth and by the extent of the human mind. He survives in our hearts and the growing knowledge of our children and the affection of the good throughout the world. And when our monuments shall be done away, when nations now existing shall be no more, when even our young and far spreading empire shall have perished, still, will our Washington's glory unfaded shine and die not until love of virtue cease on earth or earth itself sinks into chaos. There's not much we can add to that. Thanks for listening, and I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.